I started covering sports in New York in 1986, specifically the New York Yankees. I learned quickly that you needed a thick skin in the clubhouse, where any interview could go south at the drop of a hat. But whatever difficulties I may have had, it was nothing compared to what women faced at a time when women in the locker room was still relatively new. One woman who survived those early years and thrived is Susan Waldman. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years, plan Bs, obstacles overcome, the years when that success was by no means guaranteed, the Before the Cheering Started years. Susan Waldman has been a fixture on the New York sports scene since the mid-80s, first as a reporter for WFAN, the first 24-hour sports station in New York, and now best known for almost two decades on the Yankee broadcasts with her longtime partner, John Sterling. She's a pioneer as a woman in a predominantly male field, and she is an inspiration, especially to younger generations of female broadcasters, by showing them it can be done. Some Yankee fans might not know that Susan had a long career before baseball in theater, and those two loves, theater and baseball, have been with her forever. Susan, you once said something which about the whole notion of post-game, which changed my entire thinking about post-game and helped me tremendously. Oh, wow. At at a time when I was really getting jaded about, oh, I'm hearing the same sound bites and so on and so forth. And you said that doing post-game in a sports locker room is like interviewing the actors after a play or a musical. And all of a sudden, I thought about it like, wow, what a great way of looking at that. Now, we'll get to your mutual loves of show business and music and sports, you know, growing up. But is there a time early in perhaps your sports broadcasting career when it dawns on you, oh, there is a link there between these two loves of mine and and careers, show business and broadcasting and reporting? Well, that's why I went into this business, besides the fact that I didn't know if there was anything else I could do. Um, But that's exactly the reason, because to me, athletes and actors are the same person. The same thing that puts a bat in Aaron Judge's hand is the same thing that makes Susan Waldman stand in the middle of the field and sing the national anthem in front of millions of people in the World Series. It's the same person different stage. And I've always thought there was a connection and they're performers. They just have a different stage. I just thought we're the same people. So if you go at it at that way of looking at it, you're, you're, it's easy. It's easy to formulate questions. It's easier um, to think about that they're performing. And that was the connection. And actually, that's funny that you, because that you, you hit on why I thought I could do this. Is, is that come to you pretty early once you'd made the transition from from theater to doing uh, reporting? Oh, I knew it before that. I've known athletes my whole life. I've been singing the national anthem since the 70s. Um, and 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 I always had athletes and announcers and people. I've known these people. I'm, I'm, I've known these people since I was a little girl. I met Ted Williams when I was four. I mean, it's it's. I always knew that. So it was something that was ingrained in me and athletes were always my friends um, growing up. And by the way, when I was in theater, 
what I would do with matinees if I wasn't doing a matinee, I'd go to the ball game. And how I'd go to the ball game is to sing the national anthem and how I'd get to, I'd say, hi, it's Susan Waldman and I'm starring in uh, Man of La Mancha or wherever I was. Do you need an anthem singer? And this is in the 70s, bud, and nobody realized it was, you know, I just wanted to go to the game. Nobody right. realized it was a way to get on television. I just wanted to go. So I was always there. And it dawned on me um, that we were the same person. I will tell you a story now that you've made me think about this because this is weird. Um, and I don't know if you've heard this before, but in 1979, um, I was starring in Mental Mantra with Richard Kiley and we were in Pittsburgh and I would go to the game all the time. I would absolutely go to the game and sing the national anthem because Richard didn't like matinees. So if he wasn't going to do matinees, I wasn't going to do matinees. So <laughs> I would call and I probably, I sang a lot. It was the, we are family team and uh, all things like that. So it started. And I would, then I went to, before that I was in Minnesota and the old ballpark, not the dome before that Bloomington, the Red Sox were in town. And this is really odd because I was down in the dugout before the game, with my little Red Sox cap on 79. I was still in theater and uh, sitting there and I'm talking to Jim Rice and he had had that great year in 78 and this is 79. And we were just sitting there and we were talking and he said to me, you know, I, 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 you know, I haven't seen a fastball all, all year and I don't know what I'm going to do and you know, all that. And I said, so you're hitting 315 by accident is what you're telling me. <laughs> and there we had a conversation and there was somebody in back of me. And when I finished talking, I turned around and it was somebody I have never seen before or met before or seen after. It was Wes Parker, who used to be the first baseman of the Dodgers. He wanted to get into acting. And he said, I wanted to meet you. I know you're doing La Mancha at the, at the Orpheum. We're going tonight after the, after the game and stuff. And we talked about acting. He said, and by the way, have you ever thought of doing this for a living? And I said, doing what for a living? 1979. Right. And he said, um, you know, if you can get Jim Rice to tell you what he just told you, you, you could be able to talk to these guys. And I said, oh, okay, that's nice. And um, I never saw him again, but it must have stuck in my head because it actually changed the direction of my life. Sometimes we need other people to open the window or the door that leads to the rest of your life. I wish I could say thank you. I, I wish I knew where he was. I know he sold his Dodger Blue House out in, in LA. I tried to find him once, but I, but you know it's a long time ago. And I told the story a couple of years ago to Jim Rice. We were talking about it, and he said, "You ever find him?" And I, no, I wouldn't know what to do. But anyway, it was. I never spoke to him before. And I never saw him afterwards. I did know he went on the Brady Bunch. I did see him on there. So he did a little acting. Um, but is, isn't that odd how you get? You thing? never know when that when the idea is going to come or where it's going to come from. Yeah. Um, I'm impressed with the fact that a ball player knew Man of La Mancha. That's pretty good. Oh, well, there are people that are still around that know me from my other life. Tony Oliva. Um, who was a coach, you know, he's still around. He was on that team. He went, the whole team went, the, the twins went to see that because the Sancho Panza was the late Tony Martinez and they were all friends. Huh. And uh, Orlando, Cepeda, uh, Orlando Cepeda to this day calls me uh, Dulcinea because he saw me too. I think we were in Philadelphia. I can't remember. Maybe San Francisco was in. I can't remember where what team he was on then. 
But yeah, no, a lot of, and it was because of the guy playing Sancho Panza. They all went, but, um, well, West Parker, LA wanted to be an actor. They were all yeah. going to see, they weren't going to see me. They were going to see Richard Kiley. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. It was pretty cool. So growing up in the Boston area, is there a mutual love and an equal love of music and sports? It's different because I was always going to go to New York and be on Broadway. I mean, from the time I was two years old, that's all I was ever going to do. Um, however, I always went to, my grandfather told me it was my own season ticket at Fenway Park when I was three. I went to Red Sox games, Celtics games. Um, there weren't any Patriots then. Uh, Harvard football games. It was part of my life. Sports, anyone growing up in Boston, is it's part of their lives. So mm. um, it was a big shock to me when I came here and women weren't supposed to know anything because my mother knew, my aunts knew. You know, we'd sit in Fairway Park when I was a little girl and Cardinal Cushing would bring the nuns and they were all scoring. I had no idea I wasn't supposed to know about sports. So, so that kind of that kind of subtle misogyny of, oh, you're not supposed to know about sports, that did not exist in Boston? I was a little girl. I just always did what I, I wasn't trying to get into the business. Right. I was, you know, being cute and singing songs. I don't know what it was. Um, and no, I never thought about it because it didn't occur to you growing up. You know, when I was 12, you're going to go, you're, you know, you're not playing baseball. You're going to go back to ballet school. I mean, it just, you, and I went, okay. You just, you never thought about it. You just never thought about it. It wasn't there. You know, this is, I'm very old. This is before all this stuff. I was a little terror when I was in college, but it wasn't about sports. It was about other things, women. But before then, I didn't know. Right. Um, and I was, and it didn't occur to me that I didn't see women on television or on the radio until I was looking around the latter part of my theater career when I said, I better, I'm not going to get where I want to get. I better do something else. And it was the only, and actually it was Ken Coleman, who used to be the voice of the Boston Red Sox, who was very good friends with a guy putting together what turned out to be WFAN and says, you just have to meet this woman. You just have to, because she knows everything about everything. But it was because I was there. It wasn't because, um, you know, I wanted to do it. When I was touring, for example, I was out for almost two years with Manila Mancha. We were all over the country. And Richard Kylie didn't like to get up in the morning. So I was the co-star. So um, I always went on. I'd do Good Day Miami, Good Day Toronto, Good Day Pittsburgh, all those things. And eventually it became, you know, get the girl who talks about sports after she sells the show. So that was part of it. And I was... I always found, but, and I, I know that anybody who's from another town will always, if you go to a, a game in another city and you're not rooting for anybody particular, you can go to a baseball game on a Wednesday afternoon and sit in the stands and find a family. It's just as there, it's the same people and they feel the same and it hurts when their team loses and it hurts when their favorite player strikes out. And it's terrific. I mean, it's, if you don't have your own rooting interest, you really can see what people are really like. It's a, you know, I always say the difference between Yankee fans and Red Sox fan, same person, different accent. That's all it is. The same person. And that's what's, that's the beauty of sports, I think. And so when you're growing up and you've got your eyes set on, I'm going to do Broadway, I'm going to New York, how does that play at home? Was that a, uh, a uh, oh, that's great, or is there a notion of, uh, uh, perhaps you might want to have a plan B? Because when you we talk about picking 
businesses or industries that are difficult doesn't get any more difficult than show business. Yeah, well, being a woman in sports is more difficult. My mother used to say I picked the two most difficult things, being a Broadway actress and then being a woman sport and she, sportscaster. And she said, you picked the only thing harder than getting to Broadway. Was this? <laughs> um, no, I think, you know, they, they supported me, but I think my mother was scared to death. I mean, I, I um, she did say this is, you know, the early 60s, and she did say you're going to college, and when you graduate, you can do whatever, whatever you want. Meanwhile, you're staying here and you're going to school. And I went, okay. And that was, and I sang around Boston. I did shows at Harvard and MIT and, and went to the went to the ball game every day because I went to college across the street from Fairway Park. Um, but it was, it was very different back then. And I think my mother was probably scared. And for many, many years, I still think till the day she died, she thought I was going to move home and marry a dentist and live in Newton with, you know, <laughs> you know, she's still waiting for, she was still waiting for me to come home, I think, but no. So that notion of picking these two really difficult entities, show business, and then uh, a female in, in sports reporting and broadcasting, what do you think that's about? Do you think there's something that you learned intrinsically at home or from someone else growing up that made you believe that gave you the strength to do it? No. Well, oh, well, that that's that's two different questions. Why I did it was because of the, those are the two things that I love more than anything else in the world. Mm -hmm. I always had that and I always love sports. And, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, it's funny because I, I grew up two things. My grandfather used to tell me, you know, you're a princess and there's nothing you can't do. My mother always used to say, that's very good. You could do better. So that is my, there's there two different things. One, I can do anything and anything that you do, you can still do more. Um, I think that's the strength I got from my mother and the drive. And one of the things is that women, um, you know, I my mother graduated college in 1945 and and um, got married and had kids and she couldn't do I think what she should have done you know if you it was hard back then you were mm -hmm. it was not you didn't do that and I think she could have if she had been born in a different era uh, right. done what I wanted she you know she always wanted to be a pediatric cancer researcher all the time I mean it's, that's I heard that my whole life but she taught and she was you know, out and around, but never could do because women didn't do it back then. Or nice, nice Jewish women from Newton, Massachusetts didn't do that then. You did what you were supposed to do. But I think I've always had, I, I've had some kind of intrinsic drive always. So what's the time frame in between the end of college and you coming to New York to start your Broadway career? <laughs> I packed up I did a summer of summer stock in Vermont and moved to New York. It was uh, the summer of 68. Yeah. Or the winter, the end of the year in 68, early 69. Did you know anyone in New York? I did run into a woman who was trying to get in theater. I didn't know her. She was from Newton, Massachusetts, and we did end up sharing an apartment for a little while. But no, I didn't. I knew a couple of people. I stayed with my college roommate's husband's mother for a little while. Okay. I, <laughs> I had one friend, I slept on her couch for about a week. And then I found this apartment. But no, I knew I knew nobody, nobody. And so early on, you just start going to auditions. What's it like? <laughs> well, first of all, when you, you find out immediately that you can't get 
any kind of an audition. You can't get into an audition if you don't have a, um, a, a union card, if you don't have an, an equity card. So you go to what is called a cattle call. And in those days, you got a newspaper and it came out like once a week or whatever. It's called backstage. And you went and you read it and you stood in line for six hours to see if someone would listen to you sing 16 bars. And, um, while I did that, I was a singing waitress at a now defunct um, club restaurant in Teaneck, New Jersey. I, I can't believe what I did. You know, I would get up and I would like take the subway up to the George Washington Bridge, get on the, a, a bus and go to Paramus <laughs> and come back at two o'clock in the morning with the other the other Broadway out of work singers who were doing the same thing. I mean, I was 21, 22. I wasn't afraid of anything. And right. we just did that. And um, I think I got my first job the next summer. I was in the chorus of a summer stock production of student prince and i was in the chorus and i said i will never be in the chorus ever ever again and i wasn't so that was that was you know it was that was tough so so i got that's how you get your equity card and then you go from there did enough things start to happen that it it fulfilled what you wanted it to be at a pretty uh, pretty early on or did it take um, a while no, it took a while. I always, there was, once I got my first company and I was a general understudy in that, I was maybe 71 or 72. Once I got my first company of Man of La Mancha, that was my bread and butter show because quite frankly, very few women can do it. And there's always some ex-movie star, old guy who wants to go out and do Don Quixote. So there was always, I must have I, I done, I bought my house with Man of La Mancha. Everything you see here is because I did, because that was, but I, you know, I did other things. I was in a lot of flops on <laughs> Broadway. I never had my own hit. I never got to where I wanted. I always worked. I just wasn't famous. I did also a lot of nightclubs, which I loved a lot. I loved it. It was a big Broadway circuit back then in the 70s and 80s nightclubs. And in those years leading up to, you said you were Man of La Mancha in 1979 in Pittsburgh, which, by the way, if you have to be in a road tour of Man of La Mancha and you like baseball, Pittsburgh in 1979 is a pretty oh, good place I to know, be. I, I love Joe. I remember Joe Lynette's daughter giving me roses. I mean, I was there. I sang in the play. I sang in the game. I sang the game. They clinched. They beat Tom Seaver. And he and his, um, it's so funny how things work out because Tom Seaver, God bless him, and I were ended up really, really close friends. And it's so, and I was across the hall from where the Seavers stayed in that hotel. Mm -hmm. And I remember that game and I, and I can still, I can still hear his wife on the phone to somebody saying, I can feel it. We're going to win today. I heard her in the hallway and I just said, mm, I don't know. Anyway, so that was a, a game I, I sang at there. It was Cincinnati. I think that was the clincher before mm -hmm. they went to the World Series. That was a good time to be in Pittsburgh. I was there for the, the six weeks. We started in end of September. I was there the whole time. It was great. It was fabulous. So for most of your Broadway career, is it yeah, this is what I wanted to do. This is happening. I'm doing it. Or along the way, are there little thoughts in the back of your head like, oh, this is this is a grind and there may be a time when I need to do something different? Never that. I'll tell you what happened. Never that. Never, never, never. I miss it every day. The music changed. The way Broadway is run changed. The shows I came to New York to do, they're gone. They're not coming back. It's a different, it's a different uh, genre, different. And there was a moment when I knew that I had to get out, and I can I can tell you that because it had to do with Andrew Lloyd Webber. 
who I think single-handedly ruined Broadway, but that's, you know, because, but he was right with what he thought. Um, I was in Toronto and it was 1979. This is the beginning of that, uh, that year, 79. Patti LuPone had already been cast as Evita in New York. It hadn't opened. And, and Andrew had the idea that he was going to have a second company opening it in LA. It never happened, but he wanted to do this. Open it the same day. One in New York and one in um, in L.A. Patty had already been cast in New York. So they called five women down. I was one of the five. 1979, I would have made a great Evita. I would have been terrific. Anyway, I was one of five. I came down from Toronto. I'm standing in the wings, and I've got, you know, it all learned. I pulled my hair back, got a wig on so I'd look blonde. And I started to sing, and the casting director comes up and says, Miss um, Weldman, um, the tone in your voice, all that Broadway stuff, get it out of your voice. And I said to her, why would I do that? And in the back of the corridor of the, of the theater came a little voice with an English accent. So I presume it was Sir Andrew. Um, he said, I hear, because the star of the show is the music, not the girl. And all of a sudden, <laughs> and I could have, I know what he wanted. He wanted that, uh, that, that tone that, you know, Patty became a star, but everybody else that sings that stuff, they all sound alike. It doesn't matter who's doing it as long as you don't miss the notes and you can act a little bit. But all I could see was that, no, I'm not going to do this. And I took the script and I said, thank you very much. <laughs> this isn't for me. And I said, I, I went back to Toronto and I said to my agent, I got to find something else to do with my life because this isn't going to work anymore. And I, w I was right. I was I was absolutely right because it totally changed. And if you look at, I know it's closing now in February. Famine of the Opera has has run for thirty five years. Doesn't matter who's in it. It absolutely doesn't. It's the show and the music that is the star. And he was absolutely right. And that's what Broadway has become. So, is there a seminal moment for you to go back home to the Boston area and say to your family, "Okay, this this part of my career is over," and Here's what I'm going to do next, or here's well, what I'm going to try to do next. I never went home. I've been here since '69. I never. No, I don't mean home forever. But is there a conversation with your family? No, 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 no. Because every time, you know, you know, if you do, I'm not going to. You know, have you ever noticed that if you, um, if you're going to do something, you just do it. Right. If you want to be convinced that it's the right thing to do, you call somebody. I didn't have to call and ask, and and, and this didn't happen that minute. I mean, just right. I, mean, I did. I did a couple other shows. Uh, the last show I did was a production of Nine, um, which was a big big time musical. And that was eighty five, eighty six, and then all of a sudden WFAN came in the front view mirror, and so I I worked for a few more years. It, it didn't happen. I did take. <laughs> Couple little journalism courses at, at Weiss Barrett, which was a commercial school somewhere in the city, to make sure that I wouldn't say anything to get me sued. Um, a guy, his name was Alan, who was in that class, and we put together, we bought time on a cable network in in Long Island. I haven't thought of this in forty years. Uh, and we, you know, remember on what was the show? It was a cable show. It was Point Counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we put together something, punt counterpunt. Oh, nice. Have, yeah, it was really cute. That's a good name. 
It, it is. If you want to do it with me, we'll do it again. Bring it back. <laughs> and and so, you know, we take a side. You know, I can argue anything. Just tell me which side you want me to argue. Right. And we put it together. And then that's how I made like a little resume tape is that I actually we actually paid. Oh, one time we won it in, a, in an auction. And um, the other time we paid two hundred dollars for to go on a cable television station somewhere on Long Island. Does a uh- Footage of this uh, Peabody Award-winning show exist anywhere? Yes, it does. In my house. It's oh, on, nice! It's, I'm sure it's on something that you can't play anymore. One of those beta things that you play. Right, 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 right. VHS, VCS, whatever. Yeah, I'm sure I do. I've got a million of those things that I can't play. I'm sure it's there somewhere. <laughs> Were you aware when the first generation of women, and of course there was the lawsuit brought by people like Jane Gross and and others. Were you aware when women started going into the locker room when they got the the legal right to go into the locker room? And were you also aware of the first broadcasters, like people like Leslie Visser? Oh, of course. Well, Leslie's from Boston, and of course, right. and and the person who we have to um, thank for all of this is Melissa Lucky, who is a very dear friend of mine, and she's the one who sued baseball in the seventies. And she said there are people that I I wasn't really paying attention. I mean, I I watched it and I saw it and I and I didn't think about it a lot. I mean, Leslie was always on my radar because Leslie is from Boston, went to BC, and I read her in the Globe, and you know, I read her her basketball, and I did know um, the stories when the Patriots came and they weren't allowed in, and she'd be chasing guys. Her story was she would be chasing guys in the parking lot after after games, but it never really it never really hit me until I got into it and. Um, it wasn't because of that. And by the way, the locker room is the least of it. The very, it's the biggest thing. Um, I mean, you were there when I started, it wasn't pretty, but it, it wasn't the players. It was not you in particular, but, um, you know, the guys that didn't talk to me, I sat by myself. Um, the writers didn't talk to me for a solid year anywhere in the, um, I remember one of our, our audio brethren saying to me, coming up to me and saying, why are you taking a job away from a real reporter, mm. meaning male? I, it was it was bad. And then it got really worse. But it was the people that were making the decisions at the station. It was the producers who would take my tapes, my interviews, and cut them up and make me look like an idiot and put them on and then send it to um, the then program director and saying, see, she can't do this. This went on for years. It was It was very bad. And then... I realized that there was still just me, and then one by one, I'd meet some people. Claire Smith, um, Susan Fornoff, who was the one who Dave Kingman sent the rat to in Oakland. In those 89, 90, all in that 88, 89, the only time, Susan and I used to say, the only time we were totally comfortable was when the Yankees were playing the A's, because both teams expected to see a woman every single day. And it was the only time that my stomach didn't turn over. I mean, I, you know, it, and I, I got better at it as I went on. But um, no, I wasn't, to answer your question in a long way, I was, that was the periphery. I was worried about um, how I was going to pay my rent back then. Did it get to the point ever where you went home and you just thought, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore? Because I don't, there was no reason for it. And it was sort of like, you know, bleep you. And that's, no, you're not kicking me out of this. If I fail, it won't be because I was driven out. If I fail, it's because I don't know what I'm talking about, which, by the way, was never a criticism. It was always, you know, 
She's a, she's a girl. She's got that accent. She's ugly. She's all nothing. I mean, it was never, I asked a stupid question until the guy started taking my tapes and making them look like I did say something stupid. Um, but that's, no, I don't like being told no, no. I don't, you know what, to tell you the truth, if I were 20 and starting, I don't know if I could have taken it. I was already middle-aged. I'd already been through um, a career, which is pretty tough. And, um, but I must tell you something and everybody that's listening, sports broadcasting makes theater look like nursery school. Hmm. Why? It's so big now and people think it's a way People that want to go into the theater, it's the work. It's the joy they get in doing the work, bringing a character to life, um, using your talent, using your singing, using your dancing. That's, that's different than a lot of the people who now other people going into broadcasting, they see a way to get on television. And it's that... You know what I mean? It's like, do, do you love doing what you're doing or do you want to be famous? They're two very different things. And, and I, you know, and, and it's the work to me that's so amazing. Getting to a, a player, you were good at it. You know, you were really good at it. Why? I mean, it's not any idiot can see what happened. And by mm. the time they get to you, your listener needs to know something else. Why? Did, do you know, did you fall down the stairs? Is your wife sick? Um, why did you swing at that? What were you thinking of? And there are ways you can get people to tell you that. And I've always thought, and maybe not so much anymore with all, you know, with all the, the stat crazy generation, but I always thought that's what sport was about, the humanity. It's one person against another, you know, especially in baseball where it's always one-on-one, -on -one, you know, pitcher and catcher and pitcher and batter and batter and runner. And yeah. Uh I was in Albany in the early 90s at a TV station, and Bernie Williams was there as part of the AA Colony Yankees wow. and uh, covered him a bit there. And so when he got to the, the show, whenever I'd see him, there was always kind of an understanding like, I know that you know that I know that you know. And so my question to you is, do you think you had a connection with ballplayers because, except for the rare few, they all are products of the long bus rides in single A and double A? especially at that time. And you knew from that, you knew from being on road companies, even in a great show like Man of La Mancha, you knew from struggle. And did that help you also understand their struggle? Of course, of course it does, because I, I did those bus rides and some of those, um, you know, those bus and trucks, we call them. There's the Broadway, then there's a the national tour, and those are pretty good. Bus and trucks are tough. And you can get those are those are tough. You do two nights in a in a break down a set and go to another place. And and you it is a bus and truck. And there were times you slept on the bus and and everybody's gone through that. But I think more than that, um, back when I first started, I made sure I sang the anthem at least a couple of times a year. I did it, and then it became a thing at the Nick games when I was there. I remember, I was forty nine and two or something, and that was, <laughs> that was and the two. You know, in the, you know, in the tour, that was when Michael Jordan single handedly during the playoffs. And I remember because what used to happen is I, I'd sing the anthem, and which I loved, by the way, I'd sing the anthem, and the team would run out and they'd play. And in the um, and I was forty nine and zero, and then the Bulls came in, and the two games at at home, um, there was. They, it was on NBC, so the anthem was early. 
So they weren't out there. And it wasn't that. And Patrick said, I remember Patrick saying to me, it's not going to work. <laughs> but if you look, if you want another thing that you can you look at, what was it, 94, when um, there's a 30 by 30, the OJ thing, and the Rangers yeah. won in game seven. That's me singing the anthem on the floor. Wow. That's game five of the NBA Finals. <laughs> uh, yeah, the NBA Finals. Yeah, it is. Yep, That's it is. pretty but good. I, but I think just even if it's a – Sublim subliminal connection there's a performer out there it's the same it's the same person it's not someone trying to just why did you do that when people ask me about the years that i covered i usually try and focus on the people who i felt were from what i could tell decent human beings and also had some notion that there was a world beyond the field of play uh uh, look, I, I I knew early on there, you know, the locker room could was not going to be the like the the most pleasant place to be in the world. But I can't even imagine, although I've read your stories, what it was like for you. Is there a person, a player, or two or three who stand out as, hey, those guys were menches to use an old baseball term, when nobody would talk to me or some other player was treating me badly? Those guys, I'll never forget. Oh, sure. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Jesse, Jesse Barfield and I are a chapter in a children's book. Absolutely. And that was in 1987. And this is stories out there. So I don't know if you've heard it or not. Probably have. Mm -hmm. We're probably there. Um, it was in 1987. And um, the writers, that was a tough group. That was a tough group of beat writers. One of them, the guy from the New York Times used to refer to me as that bleeping actress. And um, we were in the it was a it was a afternoon game and it was Toronto and um, they're playing the Yankees and Toronto uh, had to win. They were in the pennant race and I think they were I think they were fighting with Detroit. I think that's what it was. And they were playing this afternoon game and they were all going to get on a on a train and go to Baltimore, finish out, and they beat the Yankees. And I and what I used to do back then was I'd take a media guide if I didn't know people in the clubhouse. And I'd read and I'd see if someone, I did this in every sport, by the way, I'd see where they went to school, if they went to school. Okay, in that locker room, which by the way, was led by Dave Steven was a, and somebody else that is the main person in this story, um, which was a tough group. There's John Cerruti, he went to Amherst, he has an economics degree, I have an economics degree, he's not gonna yell at me. Jeff Musselman's in here, he went to Harvard, he's not gonna yell at me. And I was actually talking to those men when George Bell, arrived out of the trainer's room. Now, George Bell had not talked to the writers all year, hadn't said a word, because he thought the New York writers cost him the MVP because we all voted for Mattingly the year before. That September, he decided he was going to talk. I don't know why. They all went in, and he's over there, and he's holding court, and he's in his towel. And I said to Jeff and John, I said, excuse me, I'd better go. I better take my little Morantz or my big Morantz and go see what Albert Schweitzer has to say. And I went <laughs> over there and he started screaming and yelling in English and in Spanish, get her out of here and I'm not going to talk until she's out of the room. Oh, it was awful. It was just awful. And in those days, I, I was scared of everything. And I like my eyes welled up because I didn't understand it. And it's like the room stopped. There was, it was... Dead silence. And I said, just God, let me get out of here before I start to cry. And I started to walk out. I was going to leave. 
And because the writers, nobody said anything to me. Nobody said, well, stop it. She knows she's part of this. No, nope, none of that. And I got almost to the door and I heard somebody say, what's her name? And one of the writers said, I don't know, it's Susan something. And I heard Susan and I turned around and it was Jesse Barfield. And he said, um, I went three for four today. Don't you want to talk to me? And Jesse and Marla Barfield and I have been friends now for 35 years. And we are a chapter in a children's book. And there are people in the Yankee locker room that were amazing. Ricky Henderson was my first friend. Dave Winfield, I don't know if this story is out. Um, this is a, a wonderful story and Dave sort of poo-poos it or maybe just doesn't remember, but I remember. When I started with my tape recorder, I didn't ask questions for a while because I was afraid to make a mistake and you guys would laugh at me and I didn't want that. And um, it was the day Willie Randolph and Ricky Henderson had been out and, and they were one and two and then Winfield were back third and he'd been in a horrendous slump, horrendous slump. And then they came back and Winnie went, what, three for five and had five RBI, I mean, whatever it was, it was monumental. I wrote it all down and all that. And I said, all right, I got this. And I started to talk and I was right next to him. And I said, um, you went, blah, 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 you went three for five and had all this and I made a mistake. And I'm thinking to myself, because you guys are going to laugh at me or make some, huh. And so as I'm thinking, do I stop and show them that I know I made a mistake or keep going and pretend I didn't notice and not be able to use the tape? Well, as I'm thinking this, Dave Winfield stops the tape recorder and says, you know, I don't like the way I answered the last question and you've got it on there. Can you ask your question again? Nobody told him to do that. It was just kind, you know. I found a, there's a there was a lot of that around, you know. And of course, when you're in a in a clubhouse with um, Don Mattingly and <laughs> and Dave Rigetti and Ron Guidry and Pags and all those people, nobody's going to hurt you. So it was that was a good time to come in. God bless him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can always, uh, you know, what does Mr. Rogers say? Look for the helpers. Yeah. You look for the helpers. There's always somebody. There are a bunch in Oakland. Boy, Dave Stewart. I, I you know, and, and it's when someone is sitting and talking to you and, and making it like you're part of it. The others do too, but it takes the big person to do that. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of people, but Jesse is, yeah, the most special. As we're coming down the stretch, uh, one of the things I've always so admired about you was the strength and also the confidence uh, when you talk about, I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, so when you switch over to broadcasting, are there moments of, can I do this? Or were you pretty confident from the get-go that this is going to work? No. You're, you're <laughs> you know a lot of actors, do you? We're the most insecure people you've ever met in your whole life. I mean, there's a, there's, no. I mean, I can, you, you put out the demeanor, whether you feel it or not, because that's part of it. That's a lot of it. I've always kidded to my brother that this is the greatest part I've ever had. Hmm. You know, it's that, and it's not, and it's not that I'm lying about anything and it's not that I'm not real. It's just that you understand that you are performing and no one wants to know if you're scared. 
and no one cares because they want, if you make, I mean, everybody makes mistakes. If you make a mistake, don't do it again. You know, <laughs> that's, um, you know, there's a great, there's also a great story years and years ago, well, Wade Boggs was on the team. So it must've been like 93, 94. And I used to be on with Mike and the Mad Dog. Remember when we had that, um, that old press room where we had the telephones on the walls? This is before, <laughs> you know, you'd have the pay phones and all that. And you'd, you could slam it down. And I'm on the phone with Mike Francesa and he asked me something and I said, about Boggs, and or maybe it wasn't about Boggs, but he asked me something, and I said I don't know, and he he got really short with me, and you know, and he said, well, what are you there for? If I ask you a question, you can't ask answer the question. What what are you there for? <laughs> I was really upset, and I go into the clubhouse, and the guys, as you know, always had WFAN WFAN on in the background, and Wade came up to me and he said, next time, the answer is I don't know. Let me find out. And I have used that since 1993. Let me know, but I'll get back to you. Let me know, but I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll let you know. I don't know, but I'll let you know. And it's, you know, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. They're always there. You recall a first time or a first kind of part of your career when you start to realize now they're looking up to me. Now the young girl or the young woman at home who loves sports now I'm their person who they are. I'm their Northern star, their North star. I don't, I know it's there. I don't feel it. That's not who I am. I, I did notice that when little, little girls back way back, they'd send me little tapes. And, you know, I told, I would tell people talking to a tape recorder. I don't know if kids still do that, but back then, and they'd send me cassettes and I'd listen. And I do remember hearing someone and laughing because she had she talked too fast like i do you know so the, the only model she has is me and i have things that if i were starting now i would fix <laughs> but i was already a grown-up and couldn't do it then it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting and i do hear i'm always startled because there are there's a group of young women that are out there calmness and things i was on a panel with one of them that i had never met before and um and I think I've met her now, I've met her now, works for Washington Post, Chelsea James. And she said that, and I've read her since she started. I mean, and they're out there. And she said, I just want you to know that when I was a little girl, I would ride in the car with my parents and they'd have you on. So it, I always knew I could do this. And you know, I was, I still get stunned by it. And I know Jessica Mendoza said to me when she met me, she said, I was in the car with my then boyfriend and she was in college or high school and she said and i heard you on the air and i turned to my boyfriend and said see we can do this and it it still startles me and um you know it's like it's it it's it's a good feeling i wish it hadn't come i wish it hadn't skipped a few generations you know because um they're never going to know what i went through and they're not going to have the aloneness because there's a support system, but it can go away in a real hurry. And I worry that it's being taken for granted and that a lot of young women um, think that the goal is to get there and not to stay there or to keep going. And I see all these, for example, there were all these, we're gonna have all women doing this broadcast. Well, where are they? They had one. It was like the network said, we did it, aren't we great? 
No, keep, no, give somebody a job. I mean, no, no. Why am I still the only full-time um, radio announcer? I've been in that booth. This will be year number 19. Why am I still the only one? There's a young lady in Baltimore, Melanie Newman. She's very good. She does a few winnings every other day or so. And she does the Apple broadcast now. So she's going to, there's one. But why am I still the only female in the booth? I still am. I'm still the only full, full-time one. So it's a long time. We've been there. This is year 37, bud. Wow. Yep. Well, as the father of a daughter <laughs> who we've tried to teach, you can do anything. Uh, I want I want to say thank you. Oh, thank you. Let's see that. Um, Because the example is a great one. Thanks, bud. Susan Waldman. She's in her 19th season on the Yankees radio broadcasts. In 2022, she was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you as always to editor... Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.